This is the Cash Flow Nair Podcast. Advanced strategies for living life well. Here's your host, Rob Minton. Hey, it's Rob Minton, and I have another Cash Flow Nair Podcast for you. This is a special episode because I'll be talking with Ben Sweet. And Ben has actually been a Cash One Air member and a coaching client of mine for a number of years. You know, he's actually completely transformed almost every aspect of his life during our time working together. Not because of me, but just through his own work. I mean, he's overcome many fears and he's overcome many limiting beliefs. And we kind of talk about all this during this podcast. It's an incredible podcast that I hope you enjoy as much as I enjoy talking to Ben. Before we get into the podcast, though, I wanted to offer our book, The Cashflow Air Plan, for free. All you have to do is go to freeinvestingbook.com. You can add your email address and we'll send the book to you. The book's pretty cool. It outlines three steps you can use to double your cash flow, pay off all your debt, and build a financial fortress for your family. Once again, you can get that at freeinvestingbook.com. Okay, here's the episode. Well, hey, everyone. This is Rob Minton, and I'm pretty excited about today's podcast. I have Ben Sweet with me, and Ben is a real estate professional at Remax in Calgary. Ben's been a Cash One Air member for a long time, and I've actually worked with him for a couple of years. I helped him purchase a few manufactured home investments. And uh, throughout all this, we've actually become good friends and we share like we're both kind of doing these crazy experiments and we share what we're doing and it, it's you know he's just a great guy and a great friend so i'm i'm happy to have him on the call so welcome ben hey thanks for having me rob really a pleasure to be here so you know well, you and I, we actually, we haven't talked in a year or two, but we trade emails, I don't know, maybe once a month or once every couple of months. And, you know, you're doing crazy things and I'm doing crazy things. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like we're like very similar, but we're, we're in different countries. Could we start out maybe just like high level, like a little bit of background about your family, you know, where you're at, what's going on in your life right now? Yeah, sure. So, um, so when you say high level background, do you mean like like how I grew up kind of thing? Is that what you mean? Or yeah, well, what I mean, I, well, sure. one of the reasons I wanted to to have you on the podcast is because I know you've you know over the last couple of years you've really worked hard on overcoming limiting beliefs. So I think yeah, maybe a little bit of your history would be helpful because it kind of shows where you were and 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 what you've gone through to get to where you are today. Sure. Okay. So, um, I grew up in a small town in Nova Scotia and, uh, <clears throat> my dad was very much an entrepreneur. Uh, we, I grew, the family business was, was vending machines and, uh, uh, cotton candy stands at fairs, if you can believe it. So I kind wow. of, I grew up in a little bit of a hustler's environment, <laughs> if you will. Um, but it's funny because I was thinking about it before the call and I was like, you know, was that really a, did that have positive impacts on me? And I, when I look at my 20s, I think of all the things that I tried that did not work, and there was lots. <clears throat> but, um, you know, I, I'd like to think that my, my dad definitely taught me how to hustle and make things happen, but I think he really wanted to teach me that, but I don't really feel like it ever sunk in um, because I just saw lots of – I saw him go through many failures um, as I was growing up, and so I – I think more than anything, I, I feel terrible saying this, but I learned how to have stuff not work. Um, I didn't really get to experience a lot of things working well. Um, I think a lot of things for my dad worked well when I was much younger, but he went through some pretty catastrophic losses when I was about eight years old, a really big 
fire and a variety of different losses kind of through the market. And then it was in the eighties. And so I, I guess I really, I learned how to fail and I don't want to say my dad taught me that, but he certainly taught me many things, but you know, if there's any one thing he taught me, it's like, if, if, it, if it's going to happen, it's up to you a hundred percent. There's no other person that's going to do it for you. And you can't rely on anyone in that regard. Um, you really have to be the one to make it happen. <laughs> one of his favorite expressions was, uh, how does Pete Rose get to second base? And I'm like, I don't know. What, how? He, he hustles, buddy. He hustles, okay? <laughs> and so and it's funny because I remember when Pete Rose went through that whole gambling thing, whatever it was, and I go, Dad, he's not the greatest example of someone getting to second base. Like, I'm sure there's other people we can find. <laughs> anyway, so, um, but, uh, so he really, I, I'd like to say that he taught me how to get out there and make stuff happen, um, but he definitely tried to teach me. I think I was just, as a kid, I was, I was a combination of outgoing and shy at the same time. Like, I feel like I had confidence, but I didn't have a lot of self-esteem. And so I think the big difference there is, is that people with confidence, they look like they've got everything going on, but then underneath the surface, they don't really have that programming that, that lets things happen and work out. And, you know, uh, that was something that was really missing for me. I, people always thought, Oh Ben, he's really confident. And, but you know, when push came to shove, just things didn't work out. Things never really came to be for me. And, and I tried many, many, many different things. And my, I was always working harder than anybody I knew. And, um, and, uh, but I always seemed to have less than others. That was tough, tough for sure. And so uh, that was one of the things and I don't, we don't necessarily need to jump into it right this second, but that was one of the big reasons why I, I, I ended up doing so much work in regards to beliefs was because beliefs ultimately seemed to be the thing like that theme behind everything that, that either permits or doesn't permit things to work out for you. Um, and for me specifically. So, I mean, I, I really spent a lot of time over the past, probably I'd say about eight years working very hard every single day on, you know, not just limiting beliefs, but positive beliefs as well. Like, like the ones that kind of open things up, you know, it's, you know, if you think about it in terms of just two camps of positive beliefs and negative beliefs, well, you know, some of them really open things up for you and permit you to move forward. And then, you know, letting go of the negative beliefs or limiting beliefs also do the same kind of thing. They like they cut the sandbags off the off the uh, the hot air balloon, right? So, yeah. Um, is that a helpful start there? You think? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was taking notes, and uh, I mean, it, it, you were basically kind of saying that like your beliefs are like a common denominator in all aspects of your life. So, you know, you were working really, really hard, but your beliefs were holding you kind of in a certain place, no matter how hard you worked. So until you change those beliefs, you, you know, that hard work really isn't going to pay off. So, um, no question. But, yeah. So let me ask you a question about your dad. So my parents were divorced. I didn't spend very much time with my father and he was, you know, he worked a corporate job, so he wasn't an entrepreneur. Um, so I never kind of watched the parent, experience financial failures, either business failures or investing failures. So you were eight, you think, I think you said when he kind of went through a really bad time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it started right around when I was eight and that would have been, I was born in 75. So that would have been 83. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, he had a, a really big, we had a, a, this massive warehouse where all the things, all the peanut machines and the gumballs. And the, like, I remember walking through this, if you can just imagine this massive warehouse full of 
you know, all of the candies that you can possibly imagine, like boxes of peanuts and all the different types of covered nuts and flavored nuts. And then there's the, all the gumballs, all the different sizes and flavors and, and uh, all the different kinds of candies and stuff. And then the, the capsules and the slime and the little toys and all of that stuff. So, and, and, and it all burnt, all burned down one day. Oh um, there was a, a big fire and everything just literally right to the ground. And so I would argue, I, I would, I would probably say that maybe he was like 20% insured. Uh, maybe a third of it was insured. And then the rest of it just kind of went up in smoke. Um, and then he, yeah, pretty like catastrophic loss for sure. Uh, and then he went through a pretty serious depression uh, after that. And then, had uh, tremendous anxiety and and then he just kind of went from this gregarious energetic you know hungry kind of guy because he did like he really like my mom would talk about how he really truly had this Midas touch um, and he did he he really really had that up until uh, you know right around that that age and the then time, yeah. had anxiety and then went through a number of losses and and again you know I think if I can say part of what I think the theme or some of the beliefs that were running for him, I think a big part of that was uh, he, he really had difficulty trusting people. Um, and I think that ultimately that got to a certain point where he was experiencing great success. And then I think that started to kind of chew away at the foundation of things. And then I'm a, I'm a big believer that, you know, if something massive happens in your life, you're, you're bringing it about in one way or another, like you're, you're, you're creating it, you're manifesting it, you're attracting it, you're, you're, you're making that happen. And, you know, on the simplest possible level, our decisions bring us to where we are, right? So, right. you know, what's the thing that drives your decisions? Well, your thoughts. Well, what's the thing that drives your thoughts, your beliefs? So, you know, in my opinion, it always comes back right back to the beliefs. So I believe that he, he just had some really unhealthy beliefs in regards to trusting others. Uh, and I think that was probably one of the big things that you know, if I could in rabbit ears say caused him to kind of blow it all up. And again, these are just my own perceptions and thoughts, you know, now as an adult thinking about this over a lifetime. But I think that was one of the biggest reasons that he just, he just didn't want to do it anymore. I think he just blew it up because he just didn't want the responsibility. He didn't want to wake up every morning and feel the need to go to work and do all the stress and strain and struggle of trying to get his business to the next level. And, uh, with that constant gnawing of, I can't trust the people around me, I, I would gather that he probably felt a great deal of relief that morning that he woke up and everything seemed to go up in smoke. So, Well, you know, I, as you're saying all this and knowing what you've been through, it seems like you may have copied and installed some of his beliefs to some extent, you know, especially if, if he had a catastrophic events that led to then a series of other uh, future challenges um, and you watch them go through that. And if, you're, if your dad doesn't trust people, it's certainly going to be hard for you to trust people. I didn't know any of this about your dad, so it's kind of interesting to hear this here right, right at the beginning of our talk. <laughs> <laughs> so fast forward a little bit. So you're a real estate professional. How long have you been in real estate? Almost 20 years, so 18 years here in Calgary. Okay, so that's, in real estate, that's, you know, that's a lifetime. That's, that's, a that's, that's a massive amount of time. So, you know, you for many of those years, you were just operating as a traditional standalone agent, working with clients one-on-one yourself, right? That's right. Yeah, I was in a partnership for a long time, and then we were uh, kind of intimately involved. Ultimately, I woke up one day, and I was like, this is ridiculous. This needs to end. And then we just kind of went our separate ways. 
Um, but yeah, I was, a, I was in a partnership for about eight years. My first eight years, she helped me into the business and, uh, and then from there kind of went out on my own and I was on my own as a single agent for probably about another eight years, maybe, maybe seven years. And then, uh, decided, uh, I was like, okay, well, my business had at that point had started to get to a place where it was a bit more than I could manage. And it was, you know, just you know, 15 years of doing good business for good people. And then you get to a certain point where it's just more than you can handle. So, so I brought on a, a junior agent. Uh, she's still with me now. We've been together for about three and a half years and then she was leaving and then the business kept growing and uh, she decided to stay. And then now there's another agent and now I've got an, uh, someone else that's joining me as well. And, you know, th- I would say the biggest reason it started to grow more is because I wanted it to. And I, again, got to a certain place where I, started to uh, believe that I was able to give my business to other people and have them work it and close it correctly and, you know, do it, you know, with a, a nice high level of, of, um, of quality and, and making sure that people were well taken care of. And, you know, I think like a lot of realtors, you know, again, I guess it kind of comes back to the trust thing, but a lot of realtors, a lot of business people as well have difficulty trusting other people in regards to, um, will they do it as well as I will? Um, can I trust them to take care of my past clients? And I think most, you know, solopreneurs really struggle with that. And uh, um, so I just, again, it was one of those things where, you know, what are my beliefs behind it? Can I challenge this? And why is this not working out? And and it was a little difficult when she first started and took a lot of handholding. And, but again, I kept looking at what was going on and saying, okay, I'm the common denominator in this situation. And so I am contributing to these results and these outcomes, and I want them to be different. So what am I putting on this situation that's making these results the way they are? And so that's a common question I ask myself every single day, anytime I have something that comes down the pipe that smells or tastes like shit. So, <laughs> uh, but I'll, 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 you know, anytime I'm like, well, I, why would I create such a thing? And it's like, well, because you don't feel like you're worth it or because you don't feel like you deserve to have this flow or you don't feel like, you know, other people can make you money and you can relax or, you know, whatever that looks like. And so any type of a next level business challenge um, is something that deserves to be challenged. You know, what's that expression? I think actually, I think it was uh, Tony Robbins. He said something like, Oh, and actually, I think it was you had said it recently as well. Something along the lines of the a life worth living is worth examining or a life worth living is worth recording or something like that, where you're kind of observing and, and you know, kind of course correcting as you go along. Yeah, no, no. I, well, I was making some notes. What am I putting on this that is causing the results? So that'll, that'll be something I'm going to have to kind of, I'm going to steal your question there and, and use it to analyze what's going on. <laughs> so, uh, well, it's, you know, I, I learned that one from, uh, not that one specifically, but the whole idea of, you know, we're the common denominator between us and everything else, right? Like, you know, you can't be involved in something without having some sort of influence on it, period. You just can't. And it's like, <laughs> T. Harvecker, if you remember his book of The Secrets of the Millionaire oh, yeah. Mind, one of the things that he said was, you know, if, if you're involved in an investment and someone else gets involved in that investment and they have a history of failure, you should get out. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I believe in it to that extent, but I certainly do believe that we take with us, you know, everywhere we go, there we are, right? Like that, that, that funny kind of, you know, Zen cone, but there's great truth to it because everywhere you go, there you are. Like there really is no geographical cure to things because ultimately we bring our energy and our beliefs and our, you know, our, our attitudes to everything. And so you can't have some, you can't help but have some sort of impact on everything that you do. 
And so anytime you get something that you don't like, you have to look at it and say, okay, I'm responsible for this in one way or another. So let's get radical. And how do I change that? That's the real thing. I think it's so interesting, Rob, because like you, when you think about that whole idea and, and you've talked a lot about this throughout your you know, reading or throughout your writing about the idea of just truly accepting radical responsibility for things. And I think it's, the world just gets it wrong in so many ways because it's like the more responsible you are for something, the greater your ability to create change um, right. and to make it something that you do want. But people don't see it that way. They think if I skirt responsibility, then I don't have to be involved in it. And therefore it's not my creation and I get to complain about it and, and so on and so on versus, you know, I want to own this. I want this to be me. I want to create what I want. And, People just think the whole thing's too difficult, or they, I don't think that's a common thought process among people, and it really should be. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, you know, it's weird. It's like when someone doesn't accept responsibility, they're doing it because they're trying to make their life a little bit easier in some way. Yeah. And yeah. yeah but the problem is, is that when you start to accept responsibility, your life gets so much better. Like, it's, it's yeah. like a complete flip. And you know, it's pretty easy to talk to someone to find out if they accept responsibility. It's just, are they, they, they're usually blaming someone or something for whatever's going on. And, you know, it's, it's, that's really the way you live a miserable life, in my opinion. Yeah, no question. Let me ask you one more question about your business, because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a uh, recovering real, <laughs> real estate professional. Uh, you know, I grew a big team, and one of the big challenges I had when I decided to hire my first buyer's agent was I had this like the scarcity mindset where if I turn my clients and business over to this agent, you know, I'm going to lose out. Did you, did you struggle with something like that at all or no? Well, that was the number one thing that prevented me from ever, you know, bringing on an agent. I never wanted to do that. And then I actually tried to bring one on before I, Meredith is, is my partner. She's my, like one of my first agents that I brought on. And so when I first brought her prior to her bringing on, I had tried to bring on another agent before and he was with me for like three, four months and then just skipped off. Not the right selection at the time, but again, you know, I'm involved in it. So what were, what were my beliefs around it? Well, I didn't think it was going to work out really in my heart but I was really wanting it to, or at least I thought I did. And so, yeah, I, I would agree with you that we have all of these different flavors and, and perceptions as to why things can't work out. And ultimately it comes down to our, not just belief in ourselves, but belief in others as well. And I can't remember where I read it, but it was something along the lines of, you know, that the biggest reason people don't delegate to other people is because they just feel like they're not going to do it as well. And I, I think it was you actually that I learned this from, and you said something along the lines of nobody will do it as good as you or they will do it better than you, but you should probably only expect that they're going to do it about 80% as well as you. And you just need to be okay with that. And if you can just get yourself to be okay with that, then you can move forward and expand. There's something along those lines. You know, it kind of goes back to, and I think I learned this from um, John Maxwell, you know, you've got to give up to go up, right? So you can't take your business to the next level unless you give up certain aspects of your business. And, but once you learn to give up certain aspects, all of a sudden your business grows, it doubles or triples. Are you, so are you experiencing a growth in your business? I know Canada's real estate market is typically very strong, but 
when you decided to kind of expand your team, have you noticed a significant growth in the business? Some growth, yes, no question. The biggest thing I find, and it's funny because this is the weirdest thing, but it's that whole thing of, you know, if you want the power to do something, you just have to start doing it and the power will be there. There's great truth to that because I kept thinking, oh, well, I need to have these leads before I can hire a real another agent. But what I realized was as soon as I hired the other agent, all of a sudden the leads were just there. So it's that whole thing of, you know, take the step and everything will work out. And the further you go, the more you can see and all those fun quote quotes. But the biggest thing I found is that every time I seem to take a step forward, things just kind of work out. But I can tell you, again, this goes back to the whole belief thing. People who have that kind of experience right from the get-go, people who don't necessarily struggle, they don't understand what it's like for other people when things perpetually and chronically do not work out. Like I had de- like almost two full decades of failures, like just things never really working for me. Like I would, I would constantly be trying to expand my business and it wouldn't work. I, I would do this marketing thing and it wouldn't work. I'd spend, you know, I would really devote myself to this thing and that wouldn't work. And I just, so there were constantly a number of things that wouldn't work out. So, you know, when my life got, to just a really kind of shitty spot, I basically sat down. I was like, okay, I, I need to go deep in regards to like what's really happening and what's, why things are not working. And ultimately, it comes down to our own self-image, right? Like good old Dan Kennedy, one of his you know, biggest things was uh, Maxwell Maltz and power of uh, psycho-cybernetics. And in right. there, they, you know, uh, Maxwell Maltz said, and this is my most favorite quote of all time, and it's so applicable to beliefs, but Human beings will always act, feel, and perform in accordance to what they believe to be true about themselves and their environment. So if you change what you believe to be true about yourself and your environment, then everything changes, like period. And you can't help but behave differently and think differently and experience different results when you change the way that you see things. And your perception changes all by itself when you change your beliefs. And then the way you know the beliefs are different is because you end up seeing things differently. Let's move on to investing. Yeah, investing. Let's talk. All right. So, and it's been several years now, but at some point you involved with my course on investing in manufactured homes. And so you're in Calgary, Canada, and I'm in Ohio. And over the years, I've had hundreds and hundreds of people from Canada ask me about investing in manufactured homes and, and <laughs> would it work in Canada? And um, yeah. I, I, I'm like, yeah, it'll work. It'll work. I promise you it'll work. You are the only one that I know of that actually pulled the trigger and, and, and implemented the system. So you know, what led you initially to being interested in investing in manufactured homes? Well, that's a, that's a fun story. It actually is a fun story. <laughs> And so I've, I was looking forward, I've been looking forward to telling you this because I don't know if I did tell you this part or not. But uh, so, again, being a real estate agent, you know, I would uh, I'd work super hard and then I, I typically would make like 70, 80 percent of my money, usually within like a seven month period. And then the rest of the year, I'd be either exhausted or grumpy or, you know, get away from me. I don't want to talk about real estate. And again, limiting beliefs. Right. But um so the, the, a couple interesting things there. One is I, I had gotten to the end of one of my biggest years ever. Uh, and this was what, like three years ago or something. It was almost exactly three years ago. And I was sitting there and I was like, okay, this is typically the time of year where I'm feeling tired out from having done so much business. And now I'm starting to make my plans for next year, set my goals and do all my things and what's going to be different and how am I doing this? And but before, I come, before my mind went there, I was just focused on how tired I was 
and how if I didn't show up, I didn't get paid. And I realized, and I had tried in so many things over the years, Robin, I, over the decades, but I had tried so many different things, basically from the age of 20 onward, trying to make passive income, uh, many, many different things. And uh, I could never really make anything work. Everything would either fail or blow up or so many different types of investments. And again, you know, me bringing my failure mindset <laughs> to the table, everything was going to fail. Like it was doomed to fail versus, you know, the guy who has the success and blows things up when he's in his 20s and just does extremely well. He's just got that. They've got the, the mindset and the beliefs right from the get go. But I didn't have any of that. Anyway, so I was sitting there and I was thinking, geez, you know, what? I really need to I need some other form of income. I need some some side business. Uh, and I didn't want it to be a side hustle because I didn't want to hustle more. I wanted something else that I could work away at slowly that would kind of build and uh, would bring in some automated income. Of course, everybody thinks passive, right? But I think a more apt term, like you and I have talked about before, is, is automated, right? Like a consistent income versus passive because, you know, there's always some work involved. Anyway, so all of a sudden your your mobile home course kind of luckily at that time just kind of came across my, my email and I was like, okay, I'll look at this. And I remember looking at it a year, maybe a year and a half before. And I was like, mobile homes, like get lost. Like I have no interest in that, you know, like no way. You know, I remember one article you wrote about talking about, you know, basically embracing misery. And I was like, Oh God, please, you know, get lost. Like I have no interest in that, you know, like, yeah, oh, property management, all that, and, you know, fixing up mobile homes, ugh, like, gross, like, no. Yeah, and, um, I understand. Yeah, and so, it's funny, and you should see my friends' faces when I tell them, you know, how much money I make and, and what I do, and they're just like, what? That's insane. Anyway, <laughs> but, and of course, they're like, only you, Ben, only you. Um, but it's funny because I, I was thinking about this, and I was like, okay, I will, I'll take a look at it now. Like, I'm more motivated I need some sort of passive income or, or, or automate. I need some other form of income in my business because I'm tired and I, I, I can see that at some point that the face of real estate is going to be different than it is now and I want some other income streams. And so I looked at it. I, I was like, ah, it's whatever the price is. I, bu I bought it. I, I figured, well, I'll take a look at it. Worst case scenario, I'll learn a couple things. And it was December, so I had, I had some time to kind of chill out. And I went through it and I was like, okay, well, you know, this is worth spending a couple of hours researching to see if it could work here. And so I looked at a number of different parks and I kind of drove around and I looked on the MLS and a number of different websites and just started gathering data. And I was like, you know, this might work. Like this, this could possibly work at, at least in this one park here. And the pad fees were, uh, again, anytime you and I talk about numbers, they, they're always very different from each other, but the right. pad fees were around 800 bucks a month. And I was like, geez, that's expensive. Like, you know, how do I make this work? And well, I'm not paying the pad fees. And anyway, so I did the research and I was like, you know, I think I can make this work. So there were two mobile homes. One was like 11,000. The other one was nine. I went and bought them both. And, um, and then over a period of like six months, if you remember, I was just trying to figure out the best ad and figure out how, how to make the system work here. And I was like, oh, you know, I, you know, I don't know. I don't trust these people. <laughs> trust me. Um, you know, I, I need, I need, a, uh, I need a down payment and then I want a security deposit and I want this. And, and you look at, you're just like, well, that's not like, you got to check your head. Like these things that you're asking are just not going to work. And I'm like, well, I have to figure this out. And anyway, so, um, over a period of about six months, I kept working away on the ads and changing my expectations. And 
working a lot on the beliefs behind it. Um, and I can tell you that all the beliefs were basically along the lines of, this isn't going to work. It's not going to work because I can't trust these people. They're lower income. Uh, they won't do what they say they're going to do. Uh, I'm just going to have to kick them out and so on and so on and so on. So as I worked through those beliefs, all of a sudden the people that were calling on the ads were different. You know, they were, they were more legitimate people versus like, so all of a sudden I'm attracting something different, right? So I'm putting something different out. And anyway, so here was the best part, Rob. Uh, by about August, I had about, I think I was on my, I had just bought my fifth one. And I had some money, like I had, a, I had a little bit of money kind of built up that I was wanting to reallocate from some investments and that had not worked out. <laughs> so the funny part was I didn't tell my wife about what I was doing. I didn't, because I, I realized that this was one of these things where I was like, okay, I really, 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 really want this to work. I don't, I don't want another failure. I, I want this to work. And so I'm, I'm not going to tell anybody about it except for the buddy of mine that I was going to borrow his piece of crap car. So when I would drive around the mobile home parks, people wouldn't think I was any, I had any amount of success because I had just bought a Lexus. And you're like, don't drive a luxury vehicle through the park. And, <laughs> and so I was like, oh, well, I'm kind of screwed there. So I, he was the only person I told about this. I didn't tell anybody else. And so I, I, uh, I intentionally didn't tell my wife about it for almost, well, for over six months. And then finally, one day we're driving along and I said to her, I go, so um, I've got something I have to tell you. And she's like, oh, okay. Uh, I said, I've been, uh, I've been keeping a secret from you. And she's like, oh, this uh, is good, you know. <laughs> and, and I said, I've been keeping the secret since December. And like, I'm just toying with her. And she's like, what? Like I could see like she was just going through this turmoil. Like she's just like, what's coming? You know, and, um, and I, she's like, I, she, she was starting to get upset. And I was like, just hang on a sec. I said, it's good. It's, it's a good thing. And um, so we, uh, I said, I've been, I've been buying and, and doing rent-to-owns on mobile homes. And she's like, what? And I said, yeah, so I'll buy them and I will you know, multiply the price and then I'll resell them with financing over a period of eight to 12 years. And she's like, what, what are you talking about? So she pulls out her phone and I'm like, here, plug these numbers in. And I'm like, you know, this times this and multiply by this over a period of this. And, and I said, that's, that's what the numbers look like. And she's like, what? And you have how many of these? I'm like, I have five. And she goes, well, wh what's the plan here? And I said, well, I'd like to get up to $10,000 a month in, in passive income. And she's like, $10,000. Like, that's crazy. Like, I can't believe you're even thinking that way. And she's like, well, how much are you at now? And I was like, um, I think maybe at that point I was just over $2,000 a month or something. And she's like, so you're making over $2,000 a month in passive income in six months. And I'm like, well, it's not passive by any stretch. Like, no, it's not been passive, challenging. Right. Exactly. So anyway, long story short, I literally just bought my 15th one the other day. Um, and, uh, I, I don't know what my exact number is. I'm, I'm not great for tracking stuff, but, uh, I'm probably just over $6,000 a month, um, for the quote unquote automated income. And, uh, it's been decent. Um, there's, there's no question. There's still challenges with it, you know, uh, regularly. Um, but, uh, you know, overall it's, it's fairly decent, but I understand why people, 
especially people in Ontario and, and in a lot of places anywhere near Vancouver or even in Nova Scotia and Montreal, any of these areas where you know, you're around a major city other than Calgary, um, the reason people can't make it work is because it costs too much to buy one. Like they're, I know here in Calgary, the only reason it's worked for me is because we went through a major dip in real estate, like property values pull back a lot. So these units that I can now purchase for five, 10, 15, 20,000, or well, let's say five to $15,000 are typically, they used to sell for, you know, some of them were, they were 30 plus. So real estate prices pull back a lot. Um, Calgary has gone through a major economic downturn over the past six years. Uh, and it's been a bit of a slow burn down, down, down. And so the past three years have been great. And I can tell you that this is the only one I've bought so far this year because we've been seeing a little bit of a turn in the market here, um, a little bit. But anyway, so that's part of the reason why I've been able to do it and why I understand why a lot of other people can't do it because they, they just can't find them cheaply enough. Like the, the numbers just don't make sense to be able to, because you're not going to buy it for 80 and resell it for 100. Like, you, you know, part of the, the, the advantage to it is being able to resell them in multiples, right? Yeah, well, you know what? I kind of, I kind of disagree with with that. I mean, I think the numbers are all relative, right? You know, higher okay. price market. It's very similar to like if you buy a single family home and you offer it on a rent to own program. Someone says, "Hey, that only rent to own only works in this area, and it won't work okay. in this area." <laughs> right. It's not. Right. It's not the numbers. It's it's the idea behind it, right? And the numbers will adjust from marketplace to marketplace. Obviously, certain areas are a lot less expensive and they're easier to buy because they're less expensive. But I think the numbers are relative from area to area. I mean, I think they're attractive investments. The underlying reasons, you're helping someone buy a home that couldn't buy a home. You know what I mean? Yeah, valid point, valid point. So so let me ask you this. So I didn't realize uh, Calgary's market has kind of been going through you know, like a challenging time over the last five or six years, would you, mm-hmm. would you say that these investments have performed a little bit better because of that? Yes, definitely. You would. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Because it, it's presented, this downturn has presented an opportunity to purchase these units at much, much lower rates. When things are hard economically, people want lower cost housing. And so the demand for lower priced housing usually increases. Oh, so okay. they turned out to be like my best investments, which I didn't realize you were kind of, you guys were going through a, a down period there. So it's interesting. Well, and you know, here's the other thing that's also interesting is this is just, you know, there's always these little, little interesting things behind stuff. Uh, and I'll give you an example. So one of the reasons I love Malcolm Gladwell's books is because of the way he does analysis on things is he'll find something behind the scenes, like the whole idea of 10,000 hours, right? Like, that's, don't get me wrong, it's a lot. But the point is, by the time you've done 10,000 hours, you're such a pro that you could do things blindfolded and you just, you get it, right? Whereas the average person who's got 1,000 hours under the belt, they have no concept of that. But there's these shortcuts through things, right? And there's these other little things that you would never know unless you were doing it yourself, right? I'll give you a perfect example. So in real estate, in regular organized real estate, realtors, MLS, all that stuff, everything's recorded, right? So the property goes on the market. If they do a price reduction, anyone can find out about it. What's the sale price? How long was it on the market? For mobile homes, totally different. 
everything is kind of quiet. It's silent. It's, you know, you go to some guy's website and he's a mobile home dealer, um, but he's not a realtor because technically they're not real estate. So he can sell these things without a license. He doesn't tell anybody what the sale prices are. So here's part of the secret there. Part of the secret is that if it goes on the MLS, uh, maybe somebody asks $40,000 for it and it sells for 30 or 35, it's now recorded and then somebody has the ability to go in and do a proper analysis to determine what the sale price should be. But when this guy lists one, or there's two competing companies here in Calgary, and they both do resales as well as new homes um, for mobiles. And so, but the deal is when I first started dealing with them, I said, hey, how much did this sell for? He's like, sorry, man, we don't, we don't disclose sale prices. I'm like, what? He's like, no, we don't. I'm like, that's crazy talk. And he goes, well, it, it is and it isn't. But the benefit is this, is that in a lot of cases, like I, Rob, I will write extremely aggressive offers on properties. Like I will come in, you know, sometimes at 25% of the list price on the property, right. um, yeah. but not on the MLS because nobody's, they're not even going to reply, right? If I'm dealing with a realtor, like I'll be lucky to get a phone call back, you know, right. but with this guy here, he'll call me on stuff. He'll be like, Hey, these guys are pretty motivated. Um, you know, throw something on paper and uh, we'll see if we can do a deal. I'm like, okay. And so I'll often write, you know, $5,000 offer on a $20,000 mobile home. And then sometimes I'll get it for seven grand. Like, so my point is, is that if all of those prices were disclosed, like nobody would have any concept as to how much, like it would just change everything. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I've never really thought about that. You know, the market price of any assets really what a buyer is willing to pay. So and, and I think one of the reasons why these are great investments is because there are not a huge number of buyers that are that are able to just write a check to buy one of these homes. So market price is what the, what someone's willing to pay. But I agree with you. I never really thought about you can't do a, a market summary of what manufactured homes have sold for in a specific area. It's because there's no information. You're right. Exactly. Yeah. And I would I would say that probably around here, roughly 50% of the mobile homes. I'm just guessing, but yeah, 50% of the mobile homes will sell on the MLS and then the other 50% will sell, you know, privately they'll sell on Kijiji or they'll sell on, you know, Facebook marketplace or they sell through these mobile home dealers. Uh, but again, they, you know, those prices are never disclosed. So for me, it's, it's, it's an advantage because, you know, when I come up, I see a, a private sale, I'll just walk in and I use my favorite Rob Minton line. I don't know if this is something you'd consider, but here's what I'd be willing to offer it. Is this something you might be open to? And so I just kind of throw, I, I use that line to throw something out there and uh, just kind of see the way people reply. And, um, you know, seven out of 10 times, it's usually an effective way to go. And then the other 30% of the time, people are just, they don't have enough market conditioning yet. Right. And then, they, you know, if how many times, though, I'm sure it's happened to you where you've made an offer and it didn't work out initially. And then maybe four, five, six, seven weeks later, you hear from the person again. And um, yep. has that happened? Has that happened to you? Yeah. Well, and the funniest part about it is the answer is yes. But sometimes it's even a year later. And I even had a guy call me up. Uh, and it was again, it was through this dealer. But I had him call me up and, and he said to me, he goes, uh, Hey Ben, the last offer you made on this property a year ago was five thousand dollars. Does that offer still stand? And I was like, oh, <laughs> Sure. You know? I mean, what he doesn't want to try and counter? Like, no, yeah, sure, you bet I'll give you five thousand bucks for it. And so it's one of those things where 
you, you just you just never know. You're right, though. Like lots of people will come out of the woodwork. Uh, I find that's a pretty normal thing. And then I've had other situations where I've made an offer on something, and then months later or weeks later, I, I I'm not willing to pay that same price anymore because you know I had someone who was kind of willing to go into it, you know, right away, and maybe I don't now, so it's worth less to me. And so sometimes you get it for a thousand bucks less. So it's interesting because it's very much the wild west in that regard. Um, and, uh, I don't, my favorite part's doing the deal. Like I really, I enjoy the acquisition part more than anything. Uh, yeah, I'm with you. I'm a deal junkie too. So I know we're, we've been talking for a while. Most people, when they go to make their first investment property, they have, uh, you know, a pretty strong fear, right? And pulling the trigger on a property is, is pretty scary. Prior to investing in manufactured homes, had you purchased any rental real estate? Are you are you asking this to poke a wound? Is that what you're doing? No, no, no I'm, I'm. It's a genuine question. I, apparently, there's a wound there, and I apologize if I poked it. <laughs> no, I'm just being funny. So, the first rental property I bought, I could honestly, Rob, I should probably write a book on on my adventures. And they they might be as good as yours, but so I read uh, Kiyosaki's Rich Dad Poor Dad, and I was like, that's it. Like this is happening. I'm I'm like I was. I was always very industrious and motivated and had lots of energy and tried many things, but my success rate was almost nil. Like I tried so much stuff and things just really didn't come together. And so I, I don't know. I had, I, one of the books I read was called credit cardmanship. Um, and it was all about using credit cards, um, for, for, <laughs> for this going, can't you? Um, it was about using credit cards, and, you know, you take a loan off one and you pay off the other and you, you can use it for 30 days interest-free and all the different things. And anyway, so I bought my first rental property with credit cards. Um, and that, that, that could have worked out, but it didn't. Um, I had nothing but major problems. Like I, I literally, I had cockroaches and people were like, Cock- are there cockroaches in Calgary? It's so cold. <laughs> yes, there are. And they're in my <laughs> rental property. I had a fire. I had I had water leaking through the roof and the bathrooms into the basement. I had a I had a crack dealer um, who turned out to be some gang member and a hooker living in there. And she was always trying to like she never had the rent money, but she was always trying to like make some other arrangement with me. And Hopefully. honestly, the day that I went to kick those guys out, I had three buddies with me that were all a good solid forty pounds bigger than me, and I was like, boy. <laughs> Need your like I need your help here, and they're like, "What are we doing?" I'm like, "We are kicking them out," and I was like, "We're just doing it because they haven't paid rent. I need you guys to help me. Like, just stand behind me and do what I tell you to do." And they're like, "Okay, no problem." <laughs> so we show up. I'm banging on the door, and like, forget about rental rules. Like, I mean, I was literally 22 or whatever it was at the time, and uh, and I was like, "You got you, you need to go. Like, it's time for you to go. I've given you an eviction notice. Like, you got to go." And and the guy said, "Okay." And he's a little Asian dude, and he's probably half my size. And he's like looking at me with these like "I'll kill you" eyes. And he's like, "One sec, I'll be right back." And he walks in the other room, and I'm like literally standing there, like doing everything I can to not tremble. And he comes walking in the room, and he comes walking out, and he's got his hand behind his back, Rob. And I'm just like, "Oh, oh no, my! Gun. Does he have a gun? Like, does he have a gun?" And so the probability of that happening in Canada is probably like one tenth of the probability that happened in the United States because the gun laws here right, are just yeah. so different. Um, and, uh, and then he, he intentionally is just toying with me. Like he's obviously toying with me. 
this guy had no fear. And so he, he came out of the room and he like pulls it out quickly like that. It was his cell phone. And then him and his, <laughs> him and his, uh, his hooker just walked out. And I was like, boys, grab all the stuff, like back alley right now. So we took everything out and we just threw it in the back alley up against the fence. And then I'm, I'm bartending at the time. Like that's what I was doing for a job. And I get this phone call. <laughs> oh God, I was sick to my stomach. I get this phone call and the guy says, uh, Hey man, your, your house is, your, your house is on fire. And I was like, what do you mean it's on fire? He's like, yeah, like all that stuff you put on the, the back fence, is, it's totally ablaze. Like it, everything's on fire. And I was like, hmm, well, is this an opportunity or a crisis? Like, really, what is it? I was like, because I'm not in a rush to, you know, get up there and save the house. Like, I would really rather have everything just burned to the ground and I could start fresh here. Anyway, so I, I had to leave my shift and I went up there and I, I got up there and the back fence was all burnt and all the stuff that was moved was burnt. And anyway, long story short, um, my plans to own real estate were – after about a year and a half were completely dashed. And so here's the interesting thing. I bought that property as a, um, uh, an assumable mortgage. So assumable basically means you can just roll in, you take over the mortgage, you don't need the bank's approval, and you just pay the difference between the purchase price and the mortgage amount. And so yep. in that particular case, it was only like $12,000. And I was like, hey, I can get 12 grand off my credit card, no problem. Um, and so I, I did that deal, and then I basically kind of carried – you know, the credit cards myself over a period of whatever it was. And, and then I remember the agent that sold it for me. Um, and it's funny because him and I ended up working in the same brokerage, which is odd for a city of like 1.2 million people. But I ended up working in the same brokerage as him. And <laughs> oddly enough, he ended up listing that property while him and I were working in the same brokerage, probably, oh, geez, it would have been 15 years after I sold it. And if you can believe it, Rob, it was listed for four times what I sold it for. <laughs> so I was like, and I literally, I looked at that for a second and I went, oh my God, I could have really, and then all of a sudden the reality set in, I was like, I couldn't have nothing. Like I, there's no way I could have kept that property. Like there's just, like I just, I didn't have the constitution. I didn't have the heart. I, I couldn't be a landlord. Like it was just, I was sick every day. I had that yeah. thing. Like, it was just like, what is next? So right. after I sold that one, I was like, I don't want to be a landlord ever again. And then I, it was years later, I ended up buying uh, um, another property, just kind of like my first one. I did a big renovation on it. I bought it for, and this was honestly my first and my first ever big windfall. Uh, I bought it for like a hundred thousand bucks and it was this uh, little townhouse I did a big renovation on the, on the whole thing. I learned how to do all the renovations myself. Uh, and this was probably my first couple of years in real estate. And then the real estate market just took off. So this was like 2007. Um, and uh, the property doubled and I sold it, bought another one and uh, did really well on that one and, and just kind of rolled that money into the next property. And, uh, and I'd love to say I, I, I consistently made massive uh, kind of wins and stuff like that, but I really haven't. I've, you know, there's, I've definitely, I've definitely had lots of struggles throughout. So, but anyway, that, that was my first experience as a, as a landlord and it was horrible. It was terrible. And I just, I never wanted to own real estate ever again. But again, I'm, I'm the guy that brought all that stuff to the surface, you know, like anyone else could have, someone else who owned 10 other properties, they could have easily come in there and, you know, they wouldn't have had the same issues or 
they would have had the same issues, but they would have handled them completely differently. You know, I think we all, the other big thing that, that is a huge deal here that people don't talk about enough is capacity. You know, like I, you look at someone who, someone who makes a million dollars a year, they have a tremendous capacity for, you know, all the moving parts. They, they don't, they don't experience overwhelm versus someone who makes a hundred thousand dollars a year, right? Like there's, it's a really big difference there. Like, uh, they can, I mean, they, they can handle higher levels of overwhelm. I think it's probably, you, you know, yep. yeah, yep. you know, to, to them, like to someone who doesn't have the capacity, uh, one problem is a huge problem, but to someone who has larger capacity, that problem is a tiny problem because they've actually got 10 of those type of problems going on at the same time. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so, kind of my position now in, in my own organization where I've got a couple of agents that work with me, part of my job is about constantly helping them expand their capacity in many different ways. And, and not just in, not just in business or with time, but also in, in headspace and mindset, you know, like they'll, I'll be like, call me with problems. Like call me with something. I'll, I'll help you with it. I'll show you how to get through it. I will show you how it's something you're creating. And they, of course they always love that. Um, and, uh, but I'll help them through it. I'll help them to find different ways of seeing things. And, uh, and, and the other biggest part about it is I'm fairly lighthearted about it. So I might be, I might be challenged by my own problems, but when I'm helping them, I bring a real lightness to it. So, but, but typically the problems they're dealing with are problems that I've dealt with a hundred times already. So it's right. not that big of a deal for me. Right. Yeah. Well, how, do you have time for another question or are you sure to know? Uh, I've got tons of time, so I'm, I'm happy to. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, up to you. We can go as long as you want. All right. Well, I, I before this call, I had emailed Ben uh, several questions, and I, I have a question for you that I did not email to you. But pretty much everything you have been talking about connects back to various beliefs that beliefs that you've had. You know, it's easy to hear in your voice how you've overcome so many limiting beliefs. Are there resources, books? Like, I, I know you've recommended several books to me that I've read and found immense value from, but are there two or three books that you'd be able to recommend that you found very helpful in, in kind of helping you shift your perspective on some of these issues that you had? Yeah, so, you know, one of the biggest things I love about Tim Ferriss, for example, is how he's very much a... Uh, He's an experimenter, right? And I think everybody who, anybody who's committed to any kind of a success path or accomplishment path or achievement path really, really needs to be their own experimenter. They need to find a way to get in there and, you know, make something work. And I say make something work, but, but really it's about getting out of the way and letting it work. And I find that's the biggest thing about limiting beliefs. So probably uh, one of my most favorite books, which had major impact for me. And it's funny because it's a really short book. It's a little uh, frou-frou in some ways, but I'll throw it up there anyway. But it's called, it's called The Big Leap, and it's by uh, Gay Hendricks. And all of the different ideas that he talks about there are, are interesting. Uh, and for me, they, they definitely helped to kind of get beyond pretty big issues trying to think of some other ones. So power versus force. I remember, you remember, I read that I, I, I recommended that one for you. It's a little bit more spiritual based, but for me, I find that, you know, when you think about what spiritual stuff is, it's really just about energy and energy is kind of the idea behind everything, right? Like money is, what is money? Money is just something that we ascribe value to. And as a result, you know, what's behind it. It's so, 
Anyway, so power versus force was a big one for me. You know, the other one, actually, I like that that power versus force, I believe, was by David Hawkins, which you recommended and I read. The other one you recommended, which I actually, it was more helpful for me, was David Hawkins' book, Letting Go. That book was, I thought, very, very good. So, You know what? I haven't even finished that one. Um, (laughs) Haven't? I haven't finished it. No, no, I haven't. I haven't finished that one yet. But I love his writing. Like I, 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 not only his writing, but I love his, I love the body of his work would be a great way of saying it. So one of the other big things I love about Tim Ferriss' work is he said, focus on output and not input. So there are lots of people out there that say, oh, you know, pound the books and read as many as you can and blah, blah, blah. I kind of went on a bit of an info diet about like maybe about five or six years ago. I only read a couple books a year now at best um, because I decided that what I needed to do was I already knew a lot, but my knowingness wasn't being translated into behaviors. They weren't being translated into actions. And so I kind of, one of my big realizations was I don't need more knowledge. I don't need more information. What I need is better action. I need more right action. Um, And so what I started to do instead was come from the place of, I already know a lot, but I need to be able to turn that into better behaviors. And so when I sat down and looked at why I wasn't taking action on things, I just realized there's a whole lot of fear in behind stuff. One of my most favorite quotes is, if there was no fear, you would already have it. If there was no fear, you'd already have it. So the idea is is that there's fear attached to you getting something. So if you don't have it, it's because in one way or another, there's some sort of fear there. And so when you deal with the fear, getting the thing becomes so much easier. I'm a big believer that everybody has a whole lot of fear wrapped up around success, around money, around wealth, around... And so my, my thing has truly been about how do I get rid of fear sufficient enough to allow the thing to just blow? I think it was um, Will Smith. He said something like, I have a really good relationship with the universe. We have this dance, but primarily the dance is about me just getting out of the universe's way. And I love the way he said that because what he meant was there's this beautiful creative power behind everything and we're just these vessels And so if we just kind of let it happen, beautiful things really will happen, but it's us that gets in the way of it. It's our fear that stops things. And, you know, like I was really excited about getting on a call with you today and and still am. I'm having it. Like, this is great. I got to tell you, though, maybe a year ago, if you had asked me, I probably would have been all uncomfortable and fearful. And what are people going to think? And am I going to piss people off? I don't care. Like, I don't give two fucks. If anyone gets upset, that's not my problem. I don't have emotional control over anybody, right? right? So I need to do my thing. And I find the more I divorce myself from fear, the more my life flows and the more peaceful things become. And, but, but fear is that great equalizer that keeps us, it, it just mutes us, you know? It keeps us weak. It, it, it quiets us. It, it de-energizes us. It's the thing that stops people from taking that action and moving forward. And so I think for everybody, the biggest thing is about finding a way to recognize the fear, find out what it is, and make peace with it. And, you know, Warren Grossman, again, I, I go back to his stuff a lot because he has this grounding exercise, and I sent you that video, but he has this grounding exercise where he essentially teaches people to get in touch with their heart and how they do it and all the different things. And, you know, it, it, it almost doesn't sound business 
business-like at all. But when you look at what's behind business and why we do what we do, you can't help but come to the realization that we all have desires for specific things. And if you're not taking action on the things you want, you're kind of, you're shit in the bed. Like you're, you're, not, you're not being honest with yourself about what really needs to happen to achieve the thing that you say you want. And so we owe it to ourselves to find out what the fear is, resolve the fear, and get the thing, do the thing, live the life. And so that's what my everyday life is all about. It's all about what's the fear today? What's the thing I'm afraid of today? Why am I not taking action on this thing? What am I afraid of? How do I resolve the fear? And so I have spent the past 15 years finding great ways to just resolve fear and be able to just more easily move forward with stuff. And I can tell you that the thought of owning 15 mobile homes two years ago was frightening to me. Like I was like, there's no way I'd be able to manage all that. But now I can kind of do it almost with my eyes closed. And the reason why is because, not because I had the experience of it, but it's because I dealt with the fear as I was moving forward. And fear is just that thing that just has, it's, it's hidden. It is so hidden because we only think we're afraid if we feel fear. But that is such a lie because fear is always kind of running in the background, silently, quietly eroding. And if we're not aware of that stuff, then it just, it can wreck us in a big way. And I think the other thing is, I think fear plays a major role in people's literal everyday physical health. I think that, that anxiety and fear and stress, just, they just eat away at us. And as an individual, as a human being, if you want to be a healthy person, you must understand that that is playing a role in your life and you need to own it and you need to find ways to make peace with it so you can be a healthier, happier individual. Dude, I'm talking to Tony <laughs> Robbins. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm literally blown away by everything you just said. I've been taking notes. I don't even hear my pen scribbling, but uh, man, that's, that's pure gold. If, if there was no fear, you'd already have it. Like, <sighs> yeah. So true, right? Yeah. Oh my goodness gracious. Uh, and and uh, that's such a shortcut. It's such a beautiful shortcut because then you don't have to look in a thousand directions. You just look one place. You go, okay, what's the thing I'm afraid of? That's right? it. So, okay. Yeah. I'll tell you what, are you open to doing a quick little exercise? <laughs> Put me on the spot. Super quick. What? Yeah, sure. Was that, is that a yes? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Tell me something that you haven't been taking action on that you've been wanting to take action on. Uh, this podcast. <laughs> this specifically one with me? No, no, in general, like, you know, taking to the podcast to the next level. Okay. All right. So close your eyes for a second. Okay. I'm going to say a phrase, and I want you to say the phrase out loud, and I want you to finish it. Okay? Okay. So the biggest reason I haven't been taking more action on my podcast is because... I haven't enjoyed it. Okay. The biggest reason I don't enjoy the podcast is because... <laughs> it's a pain in the ass. <laughs> okay. How is it a pain in the ass? Oh, all the work you have to do to, you know, all the work you have to do to prepare and record a podcast. Okay. So is there anything that uh, you could do to make that process easier um, so that you could enjoy it more? Well, yeah. And I'm at, actually, it's funny that you're walking me through this because this is the realization that I came to. You know, before I had a couple of short episodes, these were episodes where I basically recorded a podcast by myself. Uh, and I wasn't enjoying it. And I'm like, you know what, this, this isn't fun. Like I'd rather 
talk to you, people like you, because I get so much inspiration and energy from you. And I'm like, why not just share that? So it's 10 times easier now and I'm loving every bit of it. And it's just, I got it. I'm basically doing what you said. I got out of my own way. Right. And I'm, I'm letting it happen yep. because you and I have been friends. We could have recorded this anytime. And now I'm just getting <laughs> out of the way and I'm, I'm kind of letting things happen. You're not happy with my answer. <laughs> no, it's beautiful. No, I love it. It's, you know, I, we, I think the biggest thing is that we just get so wrapped up inside our own heads with stuff. And even if we're not consciously doing it, it sometimes it takes, it takes the flavor of other things, meaning it's like, oh, I'm too busy, right? Uh, that's a really great and easy oh, excuse. Yeah. But, you know, the, the reason you're too, like, forget about the reasons why you're too busy, but it's more along the lines of that's just an excuse because you're not making it important. Right. And the reason it's exactly. not important is because what? Because, oh, it's a pain in the butt. I, I don't, I'm, I'm not making it important because I, I'm not really going to enjoy it. Or I'm not making it important because I don't really care. Or because I don't see the benefit in doing it. Or because I'm afraid of what people will think. Or whatever the reason is, right? Yeah. When, I, when someone tells me I don't have time, I'm like, oh my gosh, how many times in my life have I said that? You know, I don't have time for this. And uh, you're right. You don't have time because it's not important. No question. And it's funny because I I think one of the key distinctions I I learned a couple years ago was there is always time. The question is, are you making the time? Like, are you, because we, uh, you know, that whole thing, oh, everyone, we all have 24 hours a day. It's like, yeah, yeah, of course. And, And it's about how you spend it. But I think the more important thing is it's about choosing how you want to spend it. And it's about, are you making the time? If it's important to you, you will make the time. Like I know your, your family is super important to you. Your girls are super important to you, Rob. So when, when things pop up for them, you make the time. Like what's more important, doing another mobile home deal or, you know, going to your kid's graduation or, or going to watch a, you know, their volleyball or whatever it is. Like it's no, there's no question, right? Like some things are very obvious. I think when things start to erode for us is when we, when we have these unconscious things running in the background, these sabotage be or uh, sabotage mindsets that come in, they're often fear-based and those things start to take precedence, right? It's like, why do people, why do people's marriages fall apart? It's like, well, they, they stop paying attention to what's important or they think they don't need to pay attention to things. Uh, they think they, you know, like I don't give my wife anywhere near as many foot massages as we used, as she used to get. And it's not that it's not as important to me, but impressing her is probably less important. So I don't do as many foot massages anymore, but you know, she gets more chocolate and other things as well. So, uh, but we do, we do what's important for us. And I think the other thing is, is that, something if we're afraid of something it's really hard for it to feel important yeah well yeah you're going to push it away right if this idea hasn't dawned on you you really should be a coach of some sort like i mean i don't know if you thought about it but i find immense value in talking with you so i can't imagine how helpful you would be in in talking with people and working with them one-on-one. So I don't know if that's something you would ever consider, but man, you, you could help change people's lives. So something for you to think about. Thank you. I appreciate that. And it's funny because as you said that I was sitting there listening and uh, two things came up. One was I couldn't make enough money doing that. Right. Obviously. (laughs) 
Um, so why would I take action on it, right? If I believe that, why would I take action? And then the other thing that popped up was before the call today, I was actually scared I wasn't going to be on time because I was out mountain biking with a buddy of mine. And I love mountain biking. I, I do it as much as I can. And a couple of years ago, I was out mountain biking with my wife and we were coming down off this awesome ride. And I just had this thought of my, I, my dream job would literally be doing all of the sports that I love to do out in the wilderness with a with a really cool group of guys and talking about this kind of stuff, you know, around the fire, like that would, that would be it for me. Somebody else organizes all the other stuff and I just get to hang out with guys and uh, talk about great stuff and inspire them and teach them how to do this. So that would be, that's, there's my, my kind of next level business model, I guess. Well, I'm in, man. Uh, Sign me up. Uh, Just send me the order for it. It's not cheap though, Rob. It's like, $20,000 $20,000 per person for the first week. So, anyway, maybe that's cheap. I don't know. I don't know. How about, how about I just do a, uh, get you a mobile home here in Ohio? Would that work? That's funny. We can talk. We can talk. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, I, I could ask you questions all day long, and, and maybe what we should do is I should have you on again, and uh, we could talk a little bit further. I mean, you're, you're just a fascinating guy, and I, I appreciate every minute uh, that we spend together. If someone, you know, I'm sure there's going to be people listening to this that are going to want to reach out to you and maybe connect with you in one way or the other. Are you, uh, what's the best way for someone to track you down and, and, and get in touch with you? This email would probably be the easiest way. And uh, the best email address is uh, just at bensweet at remax.net. So B-E-N-S-W-E-E-T at remax.net. Uh, that's the easiest way to get a hold of me for sure. Okay. Well, once again, Ben, I, I appreciate it. And I've got at least two pages of notes. And if there's no fear, you'd have it already. That is pure yeah. gold, my friend. I know. So true. All right, man. Hey, have a wonderful afternoon. Thanks, Rob. We'll chat with you soon.